0: morning good morning good morning good to see you all you as well zach yes i i know that guy yeah i know that guy too yeah yeah <laughs> see i'm gonna miss that guy up here next sunday when uh when pastor four and one's all will be okay i'll be okay i'll be all I'll, I'll adapt yeah so good this is our last week it is yes pastor week four goes fast doesn't it yeah. yeah yeah
1: so i mean the first week we caught up a little bit and just, mm-hmm. like how are things going so how are things going now for you
0: Yeah, pretty well. Overall, nothing too overly new or exciting. I guess the newest thing is uh, I got vaccinated, and uh, yep, yep, there you go, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, And actually, you know, not just myself, but uh, all of the eligible staff, all of us Gen Xers on staff, and our spouses, uh, uh, Terry, our chairman of the board, and his wife, and so, yeah, so our leadership is working our way through that, and uh, I had had the typical sore arm and a little fatigue the next day, typical stuff, that's kind of how vaccines work, but... Beyond that, strong, so good. Nicely done. <laughs> good. How about you? What's new with you? I,
1: for those of you who know, I'm selling my house, and as of yesterday, I accepted an offer on my house. Yeah. So that's good. Awesome. It's nice to have that done. It's kind of yes. a, a pain, you know? I know. So, it's still conditionally, like it's not sold, sold, right, until its conditions are lifted. Yeah.
0: Um, but it's nice to have that pretty much done. I trust it to go well. Good. So that was about a week it was on the market once you got uh,
1: Maybe two weeks.
0: About two weeks? Okay. Yeah. So well, it took us quick. about two years, so that's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, good news—we celebrate that with you. Yeah, and, for uh, sure. New opportunity for you, for sure.
1: Well, for Pastor Four and One, as we close this week and mm-hmm. our final week of Pastor Four and One, we've had a lot of good questions um, come in, and thank you for your follow-up and um, mm-hmm. and the conversation. And things are happening online. A lot of good attendance for those yep. joining in person and online. Lots of good uh, stats coming through. That's very encouraging.
0: Yeah. I'll, Yeah, absolutely. Lots online and on site here. I mentioned last week different places that online people join us from, and and I was reminded after service by somebody who's like, hey, Jonathan in England is uh, tuning in as well. I don't know if you're online this week, Jonathan, but if you are, say hello in the chat, and I'm sure other people online will warmly welcome you to joining us again. So it's good to have all of those people with us. Mm-hmm. We would also mentioned last week we're going to kick off this one with a speed round and then two big questions about what is hell like and what is heaven like. And I, I prepped all that and had all ready to go, and then I realized that we don't want to be here. Maybe you do, but I don't think you want to be here for more than an hour of me talking. And so, <laughs> so I had a choice of either shortening those two big questions or kind of setting aside the speed round. I decided those are important questions, and so we're going to set aside the speed round today yeah. and really just focus on two questions, big yeah. ones but important ones that yeah. we're going to focus on today. So
1: so in the future, though, we can maybe have a little surprise
0: spontaneous you know what we should because I'm ready like I'm ready for another whole message we can just do a spontaneous pastor 411 one yeah day, and I've already got stuff prepped so cool Love you be a light week for mark yeah so. <laughs> okay. well let's jump into our first question yes let's do that
1: so first question this week is what are heaven and hell like and yeah. who is there
0: yeah so we're gonna break that one down a little bit but let's just start with that because this is a question that I think everybody has a vested interest in having an answer to because where exactly do people's souls end up after death. And it's a, it's an important question. It reminds me of a story I encountered about a businessman who went on vacation for a while. And when he returned, he was reading through the newspapers that had gathered on his front porch. And he read through them and he saw in one paper his own obituary. And he chuckled at first, but then but then his chuckles turned to like anger and frustration. Like How would this happen? Who could do this? And so he called the editor of the newspaper up on the phone, and he said, I'm calling about the report of my death in your paper. And the editor paused for a second and said, yes, sir, but but first may I ask where exactly you are calling from? (laughs) so, uh, So it's a good question of where exactly do people go after they breathe their last breath? Now, the Bible is clear that there are two options, heaven and hell. And I want to draw your attention right away to a very important verse, a short, simple verse, but a very important verse about this topic in Matthew 25, 46. Because in this one verse, Jesus clearly states this. He says, they, the the faithless, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, in this verse, we're going to refer back to this in a few minutes here. In this verse, we see that there are two options presented, and you choose in this lifetime, where you will spend the next. You see, God's desire is for all people to spend eternity with him. But at the same time, he will honor whichever choice a person makes in this lifetime. So let's begin review, going through this both a bit of review. If you recall back in week two, I put up a, a diagram of the place called Sheol which is the realm of the dead. And this is based upon a question of what happens to Old Testament saints, the Old Testament righteous, when they die. And they go to a place called the realm of the dead, where, where part of it is the righteous are at Abraham's side, and then the unrighteous are in a place called Hades. Okay, This is a temporary holding place. There's, there's life now, there's life in between, which is this, and there's life eternal. Now, that was what happened in the Old Testament. Then when Jesus through his death and resurrection, descended into Sheol, and then he ushered those from Abraham's side, and all of those today who, who pass in Christ as well, ushers them into the presence of God. Now, that is where they exist now. But in the future, at the return of Christ, they will move into what we call and consider to be heaven, which is more accurately referred to in the Bible as the new heaven and the new Earth now, Hades still remains populated with the unrighteous to this very day. And then again, at the time of Christ, at that time there is a final judgment, at which point they go to what we refer to as hell, but more typical or more technically in Scripture, it's referred to as the Lake of Fire, which is a place that is prepared for all unrepentant beings, whether that be angels the false prophet, Satan, and yes, people as well. The final destination of the unrepentant as well. So we have life now where we make a decision, we make a choice that God will honor. If somebody passes before the return of Christ, they go to this life in between, and then ultimately when he returns, we enter into the life of eternity, which is what we're going to focus primarily upon today is this life in eternity. Mm -hmm. So what is this lake of fire?
1: Right. Clarify that a little bit. Yeah. It's often referred to as hell, I think, right?
0: Yeah. And we'll refer to it as hell today too. But understanding that there's a difference between the lake of fire and Hades. Those are you know, and and the difference is in timing based upon before and after the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So we'll refer to it as hell too. But we're really talking about here is the uh, the lake of fire that it's referred to in Revelation. Now it's not a pleasant thing to think about. Because nobody wants to go there, nobody wants to experience that, but it is a real place. And it is a place that we want to really avoid at all costs. Now here's what we know about it. We know that it's a real place, we know that Jesus taught about this or warned about hell more often and in more ways than he even referred to the hope of heaven. He was that concerned about it. But still, we don't know exactly what hell is or how it works. Because unlike heaven, God never actually showed somebody a specific vision of it. What the Bible gives us is a lot of descriptive language about what hell is like. You see, every time there's a reference to hell, it's couched in this symbolic language, which doesn't mean it's devoid of truth. It just means we have to understand what is the purpose and the meaning behind it. And sometimes when we look at it, it can be confusing and even contradictory if taken literally. For example, one part of the Bible will say that hell is a bottomless pit. And then another verse will say that it's a lake. One section will say hell is utter darkness. But then another one will say, well, it has fire, which would give light. And so how do we reconcile some of these things? Is We have to understand that there is a variety in a symbolic nature to the descriptions of hell. But by no means should that lessen the horror of what that place is like. In fact, I think the combined impact of all of these descriptions of it will make it worse than we actually think it is. And one of the key verses we're going to start by looking at here is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 where Paul writes, he says, he, speaking of God, will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. Keep that phrase in mind for a minute. With everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, based upon this verse and some other ones, there is general agreement that a definition of hell can be understood as to be completely cut off from God and to be completely cut off from anything and anyone in ourselves or in another person or in creation, be completely cut off from anything that even reflects his character. And the traditional way that this has been described is hell is eternal conscious torment. Eternal conscious torment. Now, by considering each of those three words, I think we'll get a pretty good understanding of what hell is like. So let's talk about this aspect of eternity first. To say that it's eternal means that it, it lasts forever. We, we kind of know that, but we also need to keep in mind that that means it goes on and on without end, but also without change. There is no second chance. There is no change to the eternal That na- aspect of this. Now, there are some people who believe, when you look at Scripture, that there's reason to, to question this eternal aspect of hell. And not to erase hell, but, but to say that we need to challenge the eternal aspect of it. Uh, the eternal aspect of God's judgment is that the word eternal, they would argue, uh, can also mean age or eon which would not be forever, it would just mean a season of time, and that, that the word destruction, remember this everlasting destruction I, I mentioned to hang on to, that the word destruction can also be understood as terminate. And from that perspective, we see the rise, and, and actually a growing rise in belief of some prominent, uh, prominent uh, theologians and well-respected Christians within the Christian faith. We see this rise of what's referred to as annihilationism. Where rather than a person eternally suffering in hell, God simply extinguishes them. They extinguish, they cease to exist. And that this is seen as a form of justice because penalty has been served, punishment has been served, and yet God's mercy still exists because instead of a person eternally suffering, he just kind of like Thanos and the Avengers just kind of snaps his fingers and, and they cease to exist. Otherwise, they would argue... That it's actually unjust for God to punish a person eternally when they've only committed a finite amount of sin. Now, the rebuttal to this—this this is a, a common view—and some people here may even share this view. And I can see the I can see the basis and understanding behind this one. But, uh, but the response or the rebuttal to this is—is this—is that the word eternal can be interpreted different ways. But remember that verse I showed you a minute ago in Matthew twenty-five forty-six. That's an important verse here because if we, however we interpret the word eternal for one, we need to be consistent in interpreting it for the other. And in Matthew 40, uh, 25, 46, we have one verse where Jesus identifies two destinies that are both eternal. And so if all of a sudden we interpret eternal hell as annihilationism or as a season, we need to be consistent in applying that to heaven as well. And I don't think heaven's temporary. Heaven is an eternal place. That's agreed upon. And so if we're going to be consistent on how we understand heaven to be eternal, we also need to be consistent on how we understand hell to be eternal. But also, in the matter of whether or not it is just for God to sentence somebody to eternal hell, it is true that it seems like like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Because an eternity of eternal conscious suffering for a lifetime of sinfulness doesn't seem to match if we only look at the crime itself. But we need to keep in mind that when it comes to sentencing, even within our own lifetime, even within our own court systems we have in the world today, is that the, the action of a person is not the only factor that's taken to, into account. Also taken into account is the offended party. Let me show what I mean and the significance of this. Let's take, for example, the crime of murder. Okay? Now, if you walk out of the church today and you step on a beetle, Technically, you've murdered that beetle, right? But nobody gives a second thought about it. Well, very few people give a second thought to it. Now, if you're driving home and, and heaven forbid, you, you hit a dog with your car, you've killed the dog, and, and there might be people who are more upset about that for sure, and there may even be the possibility of a ticket. Of maybe a, you know, the police might give you a $100 fine or something for something. If you kill a person, well, now we've done the same Crime, basically, but it's escalated now to where we will definitely be looking at jail time. But in some countries, if you kill a president, it goes up even higher. So if you continue the escalation where where the offended party is very, very much a factor in the sentencing, and then consider that our sin is ultimately not just against one another, but ultimately our sin is against God, as David said in Psalm 51, after he was confessing his adultery and murder himself, and when he was praying in Psalm 51, he said, Against you, Lord, you only have I sinned. Against you have I done evil in your sight. So you are right, God, in your verdict, and you are justified when you judge. You see, the sin that we commit is not just against other people. We ultimately are sinning against God. And we are sinning against him who is, who is righteous and eternal. And therefore, the issue is not just about the amount of sin that we commit. It's also about the character of the one whom we have sinned against that gets factored in. And so the idea that hell being eternal, while difficult and unpleasant, is not unjust or unmerciful for God. In fact, it is very reasonable to hold that mm-hmm. aspect of the... Of the belief. Mm.
1: So you mentioned eternal conscious torment. Yeah. So that helps explain the uh, eternal. Can you explain the conscience?
0: Sure. So the conscious aspect is this idea that a person is in a perpetual state of full awareness. What are they aware of? Well, ultimately, they are fully aware of the consequences of their sin. And that awareness leads them to understand that the punishment they're receiving is just. You see, hell exists completely devoid of God, as I mentioned a moment ago. Devoid of his light, of his love, of his peace, of his joy, his hope, his pleasure. And not just from God, but but it ceases to exist in a person and even anything around a person. And in the absence, if you imagine all those things removed from your life, it creates this vacuum that is instead filled with remorse and guilt and shame, and sorrow, and fear, and the knowledge that that is all deserved. Jesus would tell parables where he would speak about this multiple times. He would say that there are those who are thrown outside into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the primary purpose of this description he gives is not to describe hell as being full of toothless criminals. He's talking here about giving a descriptive aspect that they are having these acts of anger and suffering and remorse that is leading to these these expressions of of gnashing and weeping. Because they're in full awareness. They are fully conscious of their fate, of their guilt, and of the duration that that exists. Mm -hmm. It's conscious.
1: Yeah. So eternal, conscious. What about torment?
0: Torment. Yeah, that one's... uh, Probably the worst out of all three of these. Now, when we talk about eternal conscious torment, as I just mentioned, there is this aspect of, of suffering, wailing, and gnashing due to the consequences of our sins that take effect when we have complete separation from God. Now, when we think of how we want to be careful of how we understood that word torment, though, because sometimes we interpret it as torture. It's not torture, there's a distinction between torment and torture. You see, if it was eternal conscious torture, that would require God to be intentionally causing the suffering. But that's not what's taking place in hell. See, it's a place of eternal conscious torment, meaning it is the logical outcome of rejecting God. It's not God's will. It's not his desire. It's not his pleasure to torture a person. It's simply the logical outcome of a person having rejected God, and by God removing himself, he doesn't inflict the torture. They simply are left to experience the torture of God being removed from their presence. Now, if you ask people what hell is like... They'll quite often describe these torturous kind of scenarios, kind of like like Dante's Inferno, if you've ever encountered that before, which has had a heavy influence upon society, where people would imagine hell to be like like pitchforks and devils in red pajamas with pointy tails and and, and cauldrons and dungeons, like a a burning wasteland, essentially. And and sometimes people will point to to support in Scripture for this view, uh, referencing texts that talk about fire and brimstone. Uh, and this belief from that, that therefore hell is literally a place of suffering by fire. And it, it's possible, but we have to understand how these symbols are used in the entire context of Scripture. You see, fire and brimstone and these sorts of things are very common words that are used throughout the entire Bible to talk about the common imagery of God's wrath and judgment. And in fact, there's actually very limited examples where he literally punished in these fashions. There's, there's two primary ones. There's, there's obviously Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, where God literally punished in this fashion. And then also in Second Kings chapter 1, uh, God you know, punishes Elijah's enemies in a similar fashion. But to the great extent, that's about the only times we see this literally happen in that fashion. Beyond that, in the 30-plus additional times when there's reference to, to the fire in terms of judgment... It's referencing God's wrath. It's a symbol to, to focus that it will be poured out, that, it, is, that it, is, it, is, it will torment a person, including Jesus' teaching. For example, in Mark 9.43, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed uh, than with two hands to go into hell, which is referred to as Gehenna here, we'll get to that in a second, where the fire never goes out. Now, again, we need to be consistent on how we interpret things here. Now, we know that the first part of this teaching Jesus gives is figurative. He doesn't literally want people cutting their hands off, right? He, he wants to say, hey, it's better if you didn't have a hand, if it's going to cause you to sin, than to suffer hell. But he doesn't literally want people to cut their hands off. We understand that it's figurative. And so we need to be consistent again and understand the second part here is figurative as well. It doesn't mean there isn't judgment, that it isn't serious. It just means it may not actually literally be fire, and this is an important verse as well because the word for hell here that's often used in the New Testament is Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is, and to understand how this happens figuratively, is a Greek word that is used to describe burning hell, basically. But it does so by likening it to an actual place. You see, the word Gehenna is translated as the valley of Hinnon. And the valley of Hinnon was south of Jerusalem kind of like Niscu, right? It was south of Jerusalem. And during the time of, Niskew's not that bad. No. <laughs> during the time of, uh, of King Ahaz, which was a time of evil across the, the, the nation of Israel, they would, the people of Jerusalem would take their children, their infants, and they would pass them through the fire, basically sacrificing their kids to the god Moloch. That's what happened in the Valley of Hinnan back under the time of King Ahaz. Now, when people returned to God, obviously this became like an unclean, absolutely defiled place. And from that point on till the time of Jesus, it became even increasingly defiled because it was basically the city garbage dump for Jerusalem. And they wouldn't just throw their garbage there and their waste there. They actually would throw the bodies of dead criminals into the Valley of Hinnon as well. And because of everything that was built up there and the stink and the smell and the rot and the unpleasant nature of it, it was constantly on fire to deal with some of that and to kind of burn that away. This was something that existed in the real life, everyday life of people in Jerusalem. And so when Jesus is saying that you will be, you know, better than to go into hell, into Gehenna, it's a visual reminder to people, like, you know that garbage dump to the south that is full of dead bodies? It is a burning wasteland? You don't want to go there. Now, fire was part of it, but the purpose of it was about casting away. It was about separating from life all that was undesirable. That was all of what Jesus was trying to describe there. Fire was part of it, but the casting away, the separation from life, was the primary aspect that he was trying to impart. So what is hell? Well, hell is a place of eternal conscious torment, Where all those who have rejected God's gift of salvation made possible through Jesus Christ will find themselves. We don't know exactly how it functions. We don't know exactly what it is, but we do certainly know what it is like. And when we look at scripture and the words that they use to describe it, we see things like it is a bottomless pit, it is a lake of fire, it is utter darkness and death. destruction. It is everlasting torment. It is a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is a place of punishment. It is a place of intense grief, sorrow, horror, guilt, shame that is to be eternally separated from God fully aware of our purpose and the righteousness of actually being there and to be completely separated from anything that even reflects his character for all eternity. Now, even if that's slightly different than your understanding of how when you first walked into here today, I think you will still hold on to the belief that you do not want to go there. Now, people who end up there, it is an endless time of eternal conscious suffering. And there are no second chances. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, thankfully,
1: that's not what God created us for. Right. (laughs) Thankfully, we were created to be with Him in heaven. So, let's talk about more pleasant things now. You yeah. Heaven.
0: <laughs> let's shift over to heaven now. That's on, all right? All right. So let's do that. Because the Bible still uses creative language to talk about heaven, but we do get a clear picture of what this is like. Because while no one was given in Scripture a clear vision of hell, some people, like Isaiah, Paul, John, were given glimpses of heaven that they were able to write down and tell us about. And so we can know what's to come. In fact, God wants us to know what is to come. Uh, Paul quotes Isaiah. These are two guys who were giving glimpses of this. And, and Paul quotes Isaiah in 1 Corinthians 2 and he goes, No eye has seen, <clears throat> excuse me, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived. These are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So let's talk about those things now. You see, all who, who pass from this lifetime into the next, having accepted Jesus' gift of forgiveness for their sins, are ushered into the presence of God. If you've lost a loved one in the past who died in a relationship with Christ, they are in the presence of God this very moment. But that's not the final stage. Because we still have life eternal yet to come that the Bible describes as happening upon the return of Christ. And that is when we enter into what is referred to as heaven. And it's described to us in Revelation, in particular Revelation chapter 21 and 22. It reveals what this looks like, what it will be like. And I encourage you to read those two chapters on your own in their entirety, but, but for the bit of time that we have left here today, uh, instead of me describing it, we're just going to let God describe it. Mm-hmm. I'll offer some comments and draw some, some attention uh, to some points as we go, but let's just read some sections from Revelation 21 and 22 and some other passages And just get a sense of what heaven is like. So the first thing that happens at this time, and we learned about this last week a little bit. The first thing that happens is we will receive our new bodies. As we described last week, these are required in order for us to dwell in heaven. And we read about these in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in its entirety. But Let's just read a few verses from uh, chapter 15 verses 50 to 52 that talks about this. Mm
1: So it says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed.
0: Yes. So the current bodies in which we live are reminiscent and from the first Adam. They're suited for life in this lifetime. But here Paul is talking about these new bodies we'll receive that reflect the glorified body of Christ. And Jesus is sometimes referred to as the second Adam. And these will be be bodies that are suited for living in eternity. The perishable mortal must become imperishable and immortal in order to exist in eternity. And when it says in that passage, you may have missed it, but it says when that will happen. It says it will happen at the last trumpet, which is making reference to the announcement of Jesus' return. And at that time, we had this consummation of the redemption made possible through Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that Some might know this, but but some may have missed this, is that our final destination is not kind of up there. Rather, our final destination is down here. You see, sometimes we think about time in this linear fashion. But time actually, and you can think about this more on your own if you want, time is actually a little more circular from God's point of view. And we can see this in a few ways. One way is where what God did in Genesis 1 and 2, we're told in Revelation at the end of the story that he's going to do it again. And we can read this in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, where he says this.
1: Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said,
0: I am making everything new. I'm making everything new. Did you know that? That God will reestablish his perfect creation, his perfect paradise once again, in the new heavens and the new earth. That's hard for me to get my head around sometimes. I think it's almost easier for me to envision like the spiritual plane of heaven. That's, I think that's where we, sometimes our minds go, and it's almost easier to imagine. But, but it says here in Revelation 1 that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven is a real place that we will really get to experience. You know, and, and I think our day's activities probably won't be all that different from the good things that we get to experience today. For example, we'll probably have, have, have tasks or responsibilities, maybe even some, some work to do. Now, it's work you're going to like. And, and I think I can say that because remember, Adam had a job before the fall, so work is not a consequence of the fall. You know, work existed before sin entered the world, so, so work's not an evil thing. But, but there'll be things that we enjoy doing, we're created for, we'll have the opportunity to do. We'll be able to eat and visit with friends and family. We, we just can't go to Swiss chalet, remember? We talked about that, right? <laughs> And imagine the, the worship services. Imagine the worship services that will take place when we gather together and, and, and come together to celebrate and to worship. There will be times of rest and relaxation. You'll probably even be able to find time to, to play with a dog or your, your pet dolphin if yeah. you want. And, and the best part is there's no litter boxes to change, which is, <laughs> which is awesome, right? But also notice in here that this description is not just about a place, Most of the language that exists in these five verses was about a person. You see, God will be with us. That's part of the original paradise that God created. Remember, we read in Genesis that that God and Adam walked and talked together. And while hell is this total separation from God, heaven is this perfect community with God. Now, I know what it feels like in moments, to, and you probably can relate to some of this, where you just feel so close to God even in some moments of life today. But imagine actually seeing Jesus. Imagine actually walking up to him and, and shaking his hand. Putting your arms around him and, and giving him a hug. Sitting and listening to him as, as he teaches and explains things. That will be absolutely amazing to take place. It's not just about a place, it's about a person. But let's push it a step further. Have you ever? Sometimes we think about what it'd be like to meet Jesus, but what about meeting the Father and the Holy Spirit, too? Like, like what is that like? Imagine coming face to face with pure love, with pure joy, with pure peace, and experiencing that. But as we continue, there's more description of what this place is like and where we will experience this person. Because we're also told that God will form a grand new city that is absolutely beyond our imagination. So we've already talked about how there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, that God will be with us, there'll be no tears, there'll be no fears, there'll, there'll be no mourning, and yet there's more as we continue reading in Revelation 21. It says, The angel who talked with me
1: had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. Yeah,
0: That's amazing. We don't use cubits. It's a human measurement. We don't use cubits <laughs> too often. What it's basically describing here is this city that, with walls that are essentially 2,400 kilometers long. And walls that are 200 feet thick. Estimates have done, and obviously this can be you know, debated and discussed, but estimates have been done, and in this city alone, it's estimated it could hold 20 billion people in the city alone. And that's just the city. That's not even the rest of creation. That's just the city alone. And we got a little glimpse of it, but Zach, let's keep reading, because what about those famous pearly gates and those streets of gold?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so it says, the wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass, The foundations of the city walls were decorated with kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. Each, uh, pardon me, the great street of city Of the city was
0: gold, as pure as transparent glass. Right. It's a beautiful image. It's it's hard to get our mind around the finest of the finest elements that are existing in creation. Just beauty and splendor. And and we're not going to pause to unpack all the details of the foundation. I think to some degree it speaks for itself. Just how awesome that is. But what I do want to draw your attention to is something actually that a guy by the name of Randy Frazee talks about. In a book where he speaks of heaven. Heaven. And he says, he draws our attention to remind us that Jesus entered our world by humble means. He was born in a cave to a poor family. When he was an adult and went off on his own ministry, he had no bed to sleep in, no no home to call his own. When he came to the end of his life and died, he died with simply the clothes upon his back, which even those were stripped off of him. You see, Jesus came to our world to identify with our spiritual poverty, to identify with our struggle that we have. But in the future, when we enter his world, when we come into the new earth, when we come to the place where he rules as king, it is righteously rich beyond words. It is a city, a kingdom that reflects this. And it is absolutely going to be breathtaking when we experience and see that. There's so much more about this you can read in in Revelation 21 and 22, but we just want to wrap this up as John wraps it up, as he describes this city, some final aspects of this city, in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. It says this,
1: Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever.
0: Absolutely. This is one of the most important things in this description, because it goes beyond just the, the rich splendor and beauty. It goes on to the significance of what this place and this person have accomplished. Imagine being in that city. And flowing through the middle is this river that contains the same water that Jesus told the woman at the well about. This water that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. Flowing through the city. And on either side of that river, there's a tree of life, the same tree from the Garden of Eden, the tree of life that existed there, and and its fruit is in season, and when you pick it and eat of it, with every bite, you taste eternity. Notice that there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree from which Adam and Eve picked and ate from, where they made a choice whether they would follow God or go their own way. There's no need for that tree. It no longer has a purpose because you've already made your choice and you're already in eternity with him. The tree no longer has a purpose. You are with God, and God is with you. And we will see him, and we will worship him, and we will serve him. And his Shekinah glory will fill the streets, and it will be so bright. It is daytime all day because of the splendor of his glory. We will spend all eternity in the presence of his glory. Amen.